0: Right now, you can get ten percent off your first purchase by going to arenaclub.com/slash bad money. Wow, that's a crazy offer! Ten percent off a four hundred dollar slab pack—that's forty dollars right there. Anyways, that's arenaclub.com/slash bad money for ten percent off your first
1: purchase. You have one unheard message.
2: You got problems that you ought to be concerned with You don't know how you're supposed to earn it Or what to do with it or how to keep it You're a freak with a dark, shameful secret But you're not the only one Get your hidden
0: financial fears with a blast of sun Now your healing has begun It's bad with money with Gabe S Done Hello and welcome to Bad with Money, a show about finances and feelings where we don't talk down to you. I'm Gabe Eston, your host, and I am delighted for today's guest. If you can introduce yourself, Madeline, that'd be great. Who you are, what do you do?
3: Hi. <laughs> My name is Madeline. I just wrote a book, which is very exciting. And it's all about my relationship with money. And on top of that, I also run a business on a pretty unique platform. I say it's a socialist platform, but some people are afraid of the big. Yeah, not here. (laughs) But okay, good. Yeah, yeah. We do things a little bit differently than most companies. Everybody at the business, from me, the legal owner, all the way down to an intern earns the same take home pay per day. And we also have a lot of really great benefits. We have like top paid, top tier paid health insurance fully by the company. We have unlimited paid time off. I always say not in the tech bro sketchy way, like in a real way. And yeah, we just generally try to take care of people as
0: best we can. What's the name of your company?
3: The name of the company is Tunnel Vision. It's an apparel company. So I always say if you know a really weird teenager or are a really weird teenager, you probably know about our clothing brand.
0: That's the best audience, I think.
3: Ideally, the youth. I believe in the youth. The kids are the future. (laughs) And the weird youth. That's
0: what you want. You always want the weird youth.
3: That's exactly right. You want the weird youth. They're the ones who are critical of what's going on around them. They're thinking outside the box, and they're looking for better ways to do
0: things. So before you started your company, what was your understanding of capitalism?
3: Okay, so I am very fortunate and that I grew up pretty... I would say untraditional parents. My mother, I always say I had like a goth mom and a punk dad. So counterculture was kind of in my roots, I think. So by the time I was 12 or 13 years old, I started going to punk shows. And at our punk shows, people would be handing out zines. And most of the zines were political. They were about things like syndicalism, like workplace restructuring, socialist theory. So I would say by the second I started to be come conscious of the political and like socioeconomic landscape around me, I was viewing it through that lens of that stuff that I had consumed. So I would say pretty early on, my viewpoint of capitalism was, oh, this is like a legalized pyramid scheme. (laughs) Say more about that. Okay, so because my introductory texts in zines were all about syndicalism, which is about workplace roles and restructuring and horizontal organization of workplaces, because that's like kind of how I started. When I viewed a traditional workplace model outside of that, where you have this hierarchical boss that was almost like a parent figure, right, doling orders to you, giving you small minor pittance, like an allowance that you could use for your spending while they kept all the rest. That seemed like something that didn't really click with me. And it it didn't seem that way because we know that the boss won't have a job without the workers below him. Mm -hmm. We know that, that it takes everybody to do a job to complete a task. So the idea that the only way to make money in a system of capitalism was to try to exploit as many underlings as possible just really felt like the pyramid scheme pitch. Like, no, 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 come join our multi-level marketing scheme, right? It'll be great. You just need to get five people working under you and then you'll be making good money. And in the meantime, you're one of the five people working under me. So I'm making good money. And when I looked at the two of these systems, I was just
0: like, there's no difference between the photos. It's the same photo. <laughs> that is so funny. So that makes a lot of sense when you spell it out like that. But I think people have this false idea that the boss is doing more somehow. And I remember when I first started learning about investing. When I first started investing, I had this idea that it was this like, such an intense thing that the people that were doing it were like really learned and knowledgeable. And then like, when I started doing it, I was like, oh, money just makes more money. They're just sitting there clicking buttons. They don't, their job isn't hard. They're not doing a hard job. And it was like, so mind boggling to me. Cause I was like, oh, so the richer you are, you're actually doing less work than the person at the bottom.
3: This is totally true. I think people know this from a common sense perspective. And there's a couple things about this. The first thing is that this has actually been proven that money managers do a worse job with your money than if you had just invested it in the S&P. Like, yeah. I think it's like 85% of the time or something yeah. like that. So these people we pay to manage our money for us when we get to a point where we're like, okay, I recognize I need a retirement. I have a stable enough income to start thinking about my retirement. You're kind of, then you have to go through this like, basically grifter who's like only i know how to make your money work you yeah. know and then you look at the statistics and you're like no he's selling himself I like you, the average person could just invest in the S&P and do better than if they tried all these complicated things the money managers do but then the other side of that is that i think a lot of us know intrinsically that the more money you make it tends to correlate with a cush more easy job and yeah. like i think about that in my own life the hardest jobs i've ever had the hardest job i ever had was working at a one hour photo lab as a teenager yep My job was awful. I had this giant machine. I didn't know how it worked. It would break and spurt paper bleach all over the place. I ingested toxic chemicals working at this place. I was on my feet all the time. And it was such a hard job that my boss actually told me, like, if you ever get over it, just put up the machine broken sign because you need a break. Like it's
0: like the McDonald's Frosties.
3: Yes like and it was a really really difficult job and and after that you know when i graduated from college it was the great recession so i couldn't find stable work so i was freelancing i was probably working like 120 hours a week to yep. scrape together 1500 bucks a month and now that i have this better job it is a more cush easier job and you know i finally am able to learn what earn rather, what I consider a living wage. And I work 28 hours a week inside of an office that usually is pretty climate controlled unless our AC breaks. (laughs) You know, it's an easier job and it's a more financially stable one. And I think most people who've worked some sort of service job in their youth, like food service or retail, we remember those jobs
0: as being some of the most difficult jobs we had to do and also the lowest paid. It's interesting because then people say, well, I had to work my way up you know, I worked so hard to get to this level. But as you're saying it, it's like, okay, so you walk 20 miles in the snow. Cool. I don't have to do that. And also, like, what if you were paid correlated to the amount of work that you did? Or perhaps you would, because I think they would be like, I'm trying to think of counter arguments, like, okay, so they're not going to work as hard because they're not working to a promotion that gets them more money. And it's like, Well, they might work harder because they're getting paid more.
3: Yeah, that's an experience I've definitely had. So at my workplace, we're not a worker co-op because not everybody wants to be an owner of the business. And this is a major realization I had, too. I had all my socialist ideals, right? I'm like, everyone should be an owner. But the reality is that under capitalism, there's just certain like psychological stress that comes with the idea of taking on what people perceive to be responsibility. Mm -hmm. And I think the idea of responsibility is another thing people falsely attribute with people in more comfortable positions. They're like, well, their job's not actually that easy because they have to take on all this responsibility. And at my workplace, you could say the same. Like, I manage the money. I move the numbers around. We just yeah. had a da- a down year. I manage the bad years and the good. And it is stressful. And you're the
0: face of it.
3: <laughs> yeah, that too. But if you talk to anybody on my team, when I go into work and I do a monthly meeting and I'm like, here's our finances. Here's where we need to be. Here's what we need to cut. Here's where we need to grow. Like, Everybody in that room cares because they love their job, because they know they get paid enough to live, because they like the 28-hour work week, and just because they might not necessarily have the skill set to do exactly what I do at this stage. One doesn't mean they won't, you know, people learn and grow on the job. And two doesn't mean they don't also carry the stress, right, of the business or they aren't intrinsically tied as well to the success of the business for their job and livelihood. Like everybody does care. Everybody
0: is working as hard just in our different roles. Yeah. And if they get laid off, it's pretty good. It's a pretty great job.
3: Yeah. Nobody wants the business to fail. And that's the one thing we see consistently across the board. We aren't motivated by that typical hierarchical structure, right? There's no promotion to get. There's nowhere you can get promoted to. There's no raises unless we all get a raise together. But, you know, people like their job. They don't want to lose it. And that's the motivation.
0: Yeah. We talk a lot about entrepreneurship in your book, which, by the way, I I really enjoyed. And it was almost like a Maybe we can cut this, but it was almost like a fun, like tether to girl boss. The
3: okay, I don't think you should cut it, because when I was doing this, I was like, I want to make the anti girl boss. It was.
0: It really was because we did girl (laughs) boss with Chelsea Devantes, who is does like celebrity book club. And so we read her book and did like part one on this show and part two on Chelsea's show. And when I say I lost my mind, I was like unwell by the end of it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I have
3: personal connections just because that That book takes place at the same time that she started her eBay store is when... Clothing store. It's when I started my first store in San Francisco, which I started with two business partners and it went out of business. And that's not featured in my book because my book, frankly, got too long and we had to find things to cut. But the very first business I tried to start was more like a worker co-op. There were three of us who owned it and we worked in the store. And in the same city where she was launching her eBay store is the same city where we launched our first store. And, you know, these... Stories happen. Actually, if you take the girl boss book and you take my book, they're the same timeline. It's just yeah. a different way of doing things. And if, of course, by the end, she is filthy rich, and I am living in a lower middle class home. <laughs> right. Yeah. But it's it shows you. It's like by the end of it, you know, a different approach to doing the exact same thing. Like I still feel good. Like I, and that's a theme in the book too that I wrote about. It's like I have enough, and that's an example of somebody who went the more traditional capitalist route and was like, I'm not talking about enough. I'm talking about as much as I can get. And so we really are
0: diverging paths in the woods, right? I know. I was talking about this with friends because they have, I assumed incorrectly that everyone just sort of wanted to be comfortable. So like I was talking to a friend about like, well, you know, because my boyfriend right now is obsessed with Coast Fi, which is like where you have financial independence and then you can do other stuff. But then I was talking about that to another friend of mine and that friend was like, no, I want multiple houses. I want like the nice car. I want like and I was talking about it as if everybody I was like, yeah, that's an an amazing goal my boyfriend has. And like, you know, that's that seems like so reasonable to just be not even comfortable. But like, wow, I have like a, a little bit of choice in my life. What a thing to work towards. And I was like, that'd be so amazing. And this other friend was just like, no, I want private jet wealth. (laughs) that's really funny
3: okay wait my first question though is is coast by like part of the financial independence retire early
0: movement like yeah but he's not annoying about it we both Uh have autism and so this has become his fixation (laughs) but he's like actually doing like really a lot of work to get there and like has this like crazy spreadsheet that he's working from
3: Okay, so I can relate to this so much. And I actually touched on this a little bit in my book. But when I started to get into money, I did the exact same same thing. I've been diagnosed with ADHD and the internet is convinced I'm also autistic, but they're like, you might not want to get the proper diagnosis. It can mess with things. So I'm like, okay, jury's out on that. Certainly does. Yeah. So I'm relating a lot to this do- though, because I did the same thing. When I first heard about Financial Independence Retire Early, I didn't know about the online community. I only read like the hippie book, oh. for, like the first book about it, which was written from a very different perspective. And it almost had this like ecological component where I was like, okay, so you want to buy a pen. You're talking about Vicki Robin. Yeah, Vicki Robin. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Where she's like, you buy this pen, this pen comes from the earth, you might already have a pen at home, but you're like, well, I don't know, I'm out, I might need a pen, I'm going to get the pen, like, the plastic came from somewhere, the lead came from somewhere, like somebody had to make this pen. And if you're monitoring your finances more closely, rather than being like, I'll just get the pen, you're like, well, I'm going to see what I have at home, make a detailed list of what I need and be more mindful with my spending. And that will correlate one with a better result for the planet in terms of overconsumption. And two, granting you more freedom because you're not going to work to work a job so that you can buy extra pens you actually didn't need. So I I get how this theory when like when applied the right way is actually kind of a liberating and freeing concept. And I got really, really interested in that line of thinking, too. And I think it did inspire my outlook of like, okay, I don't need the private jet wealth, right? I just need enough. And the reward from enough is, yeah, like you said, the freedom to choose how you're using your time. And that's why I think that like when you start learning about personal finance, what it really is is a way to make all of your goals and values more tangible in your life, even on a
0: limited income. Yeah, that's what he's doing. He's he's delighted. I love that. Yeah. Shout out to Clarendon for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. You guys know that I have had allergies for forever. I've had seasonal allergies since I was a kid. It causes pressure in my face, under my eyes. They're my ultimate handbrake. When my nose is plugged up, I feel like I can't do anything. I can't enjoy food because I can't taste it. I can't work out because I feel tired and distracted. I can't even host the show because my voice sounds like a duck. And listen, I am already dealing with vocal strain from testosterone and my voice dropping. I don't need any more problems with allergies. Luckily, for those of us who live with symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. I've been taking Claritin D for allergies, like, probably for the last 10 years or something, and it's been an absolute life changer. I can go outside without my eyes watering like a fountain, I can speak without feeling like a frog has jumped in my throat. I get really embarrassed when I'm sneezing all the time. I have like an itchy nose or throat, like like just the, the itchiness in the back of your sinuses is like so distracting and so annoying and I get like pressure in my ears too. It's really painful. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math and see how you'll profit with NetSuite. Everything is more expensive these days when you're running a business, and you would be wise to find proven ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. The fact that you are able to reduce your IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud is incredible, and the ability to access your cloud financial system from anywhere saves you so much time and stress. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash badwithmoney, netsuite.com slash badwithmoney, netsuite.com slash badwithmoney. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a new candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. One of the things I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy. It would be so much easier if I was looking for someone to help me with sweetening audio or let's say someone to run my merch shop or all the little things that go into running a podcast. Usually something like that would be so slow and overwhelming. And honestly, I wish I had used Indeed and I will use Indeed in the future. Indeed.com slash bad with money terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Okay, so we're touching on this a bit, which is consumer minimalism. Is that sort of what you mean by what you're saying?
3: Yes. In the book, I kind of rebranded all these different schools of money management that I found into kind of like-minded ideas. And that consumer minimalism idea, Vicki Robin was definitely a part of that. And there were a lot of things that I liked about it, but again, none of these systems can exist outside of capitalism. And the takeaway in the book is kind of that it's foolish to expect them to and to expect individual people to come up with these grand solutions to live their lives somehow outside of the system. There are very small things that we can control and we should focus on those things, obviously. But, you know, even doing the consumer minimalist mindset, you're still... Well, your, your retirement fund, you're still investing in ownership of other companies that have other workers that have to show up and do the job every single day. They right. have to make the pens for your 401k to perform well, you mm-hmm. know that. So these things are all interconnected and you can't expect to beat it completely. But you also can't be such a martyr to your ideology that you don't
0: look out for your future self because the only one who gets punished there is you. Right. I know. I mean, so. Going back to your business type, do you think there are other companies that could realistically do that? Or are there other companies that couldn't do this?
3: I think any company could do this. And a cool thing has been that I've heard of other businesses starting to run the same way. The challenges that some people cite when they're like, well, any business couldn't do this. Because what if, for example, you have somebody who had to do a lot of specialized training training? to do their role at a business and they have massive amounts of student loan debt and to me the answer is well the company just pays off the student loans for them in conjunction with their pay but their pay now wouldn't that be interesting right their pay remains equal to everybody else and some people are like well it's not fair if you're a doctor for example you'd go to school for 12 years for that but that the idea that going to school isn't a form of labor equal with the person who had to also work 12 years doing shitty manual fast food jobs or whatever manual labor like That's both work. And that person didn't get compensated very much for working in the trenches. Right. They probably made minimum wage. So, you know, to try to say one form of work is more valuable than another, I think, is rooted in this form of like elitism or classism and like our idea of what real work is.
0: I know. I just saw this TikTok where it was this girl and she was saying that her Arab father was very strict and he didn't want her to do her dream job. And it's like a montage of her sort of crying and training for this job. And you don't know what the job is till the end. And she's like putting in the hours and like you see her again, like crying, which is amazing that people film themselves crying. And she was like, you know, she's like, my dad doesn't want me to do this job, but it's my dream. And At the end, it's revealed that she's a flight attendant. And when I tell you the fucking comments were like, your dad was right. Or like, fuck or like being like, oh, my God, I can't believe your dream job was to serve tea to people on planes like it. And then other people were commenting, being like, maybe she wants to travel. Maybe she likes planes like fuck off. But the amount of people that were like, this job is stupid. I can't believe this was your dream. Like your dad was right. This is a dumb job. And I was like, do who do you think is going to give you coffee on a plane then? you, She had to study the plane manuals. She had to train. What are you talking about? She's on her feet all day. What are you talking about? It was so maddening. It is
3: maddening. And I, I, Always ask this question. I've never seen it with a flight attendant specifically, but I have friends who are flight attendants, and one friend in particular. The day she became a flight attendant, her quality of life improved so much because she had previously been spending a lot of money prioritizing travel. Yeah, and then she had a child, and she's like, "I can't do that as much anymore, but I can have this job that allows me to be home with my child and also be a flight attendant." Also, and it's a
0: it's a cool job. It's a cool job. And like, anyway, either if your job, if your dream job is X Y Z, doesn't matter, or if you're working a job you know that you enjoy like or you don't enjoy whatever it's still you still need you need plumbers you need people serving you food you need people working in shops you need people like I mean it's just so wild and I'm sure there'll be pushback like oh doctors blah 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 okay but you think society can run without like the person serving you coffee that's what you think That's
3: what I always think. So whenever anybody's like, well, this person's broke because they flip burgers for a living. Like they should just get a non-burger flipping job. Okay, get a (laughs) doctor in there and have the doctor try to run a McDonald's. Right. So my my response, I usually am like catty and I'm like, oh, this is really interesting. So you think we should abolish the restaurant industry? And they're like, what? And I'm like, well, you're You don't think that people should be doing fast, casual restaurant jobs, and you probably don't think people should be waiters or servers either. So what do you propose instead of the restaurant industry? That's really interesting. I've never heard somebody propose abolishing the (laughs) restaurant industry before. And it's me being sassy, but when they're like, well, no, I I don't want to abolish the restaurant industry, then it's like, okay, well, then follow your line of thought. Who do you want to flip the burgers if not the person flipping burgers? Racism. Who do you want to be a waiter? Who do you want doing the service jobs? Yeah, it is. And we kind of see that in San Francisco. I lived in San Francisco for a while. And I left as the cost of living got so, 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 so high as tech companies moved in. And I had just gone there for college. It was just a place I was going to go to college and then, you know, carry on with my life. But at a certain point, the like demographics of San Francisco became so flipped, like it became so heavy on the tech industry that they reached a point where they could not find people for service jobs because all the people working service jobs couldn't afford to live in the city. So they moved somewhere else and got service jobs in their neighborhoods. Right. And they were literally like, do we have to bus poor people in to serve us coffee? Yeah. And all of the tech pros were furious. So it's like, no, you want people to do these jobs. We need these jobs for society to function. Like you said, the plumbers, but also the doctors, but also, yeah, the people serving you coffee in the morning. So the idea that you actually think, look down on these jobs when you yourself like need them and use them in society, and we want them to function. It's just very short sighted. And it goes along with that argument where everybody's like, well, just learn to program. And you're like, cool. So you want a world where literally everybody's a programmer. Somebody's going to program you uh, an app that's a virtual cup of coffee they serve you. Or who's going to grow the food? Everybody's a programmer. Mm -hmm. Who's going to do your, you know, electrical work or build your houses? Well, everybody's a programmer. You can't do that. So it's this very, like, short-sighted way of viewing society and labor that's very individualistic. It's like, well, I wasn't thinking about the big picture. I was thinking about that one person. And it's like, okay, well, that's the disconnect. We need to think big picture about all the people.
0: Yeah. And also like this capitalist idea of, well, you need to be striving for more. You need to be ambitious. What's your real goal? Like my sister is an inc- I've talked about it on the show before. She's an incredible bar manager. She's she takes, you know, she's worked her way up to bar manager. You know, she's she goes and she organizes the liquor room without being asked to. And she's, you know, doing all this extra work and whatever. She's very good at her job. And I remember for so long people would go, well, what does she really want to do? Like, what's her, you know? What's her like, you know, end game? And, and it would even be, does she want to be a writer? Is she working towards something? Because we live in L.A. Or she, they would say, oh, well, is, is she trying to open her own restaurant one day? Like, is that her goal? Like to have her own place? Which like, maybe that's like an abstract goal that she could, if she, you know, want, if she gets to a certain place, maybe. But like, why do we need to be asking her what your, what your real goal is? She just got promoted. Her real goal is she just got promoted. Leave her alone.
3: Yeah, I love this, actually, because this is a parallel with a friend I had in San Francisco. I met somebody and they were very they had performed very well academically, which we obviously notice and correlate with like intelligence. But they were really good at the game that, you know, you play in our system to get ahead according to, you know, every kind of person older than us. Right. All the things you're supposed to do, you're supposed to do well in school, you're supposed to go to college, you're supposed to do well in college, you get the degree and the magic perfect job is going to fall into your lap. So they did really, really well in school. They had do you know, it just made sense to their brain. They, I believe, got a perfect score on their SAT. Whatever the case, Diane Feinstein flew out to like congratulate them personally on their SAT score. So, this was like a person who did was doing the game right. Yeah. Then they go to college and ADHD meltdown. They're like, I can't manage all of this. They drop out. So I meet them a few years later and I'm like, What do you do? And they're like, Oh, I'm a door guy at the bar at the time, guy. Right you know, we all live and learn with the pronouns and the who we are. But So at the time they were like, well, I'm a door guy at the bar. And they're like, but it's okay. I'm going to go back to school and I'm going to be a writer. And I got kind of offended by this, but I just met them. So I didn't want to say anything. So then later they bring it up again. They're like, yeah, well, you know, this isn't really what I'm going to do. Cause you know, I, who wants to just be a door guy? Like I'm going to be a writer. I'm going to go back to school. And finally, one day I was like, do you know what my dad does for a living? And they were like, no, you never told me. And I was like, my dad's a, a, a door guy at a bar. Yeah. My, my dad works the door at bars and and he's the happiest person I know. Right. And it's a good job. And the more I hear you talk, the more I wonder, do you actually want to go back to school? Do you want to be a writer? Because it kind of seems like you actually like working in bars.
0: Defensive. Like,
3: what do you really want to do? Yeah. If you don't, if, if nobody was ever asking you what you really wanted to do or if nobody was ever talking about your quote unquote potential because you performed so well academically in school. What would you really want to do? And they were like, nobody's ever asked me that before, but I guess I just want to be a bartender. And now they're a bartender. That's what they do. And now they are one of the happiest people I know.
0: Yeah. Get behind the bar. Like, okay, radiologist, get behind the bar and make me whatever fucking drink she has to make at the drag bar that has Sour Patch Kids in it. Go. (laughs) Yeah. Nobody can handle that job. (laughs) I know. So funny. She told me because it's a drag bar, right? So she told me she was like, if you woke me up in the middle of the night with like a gun to my head, I would be like, let's get loud. Let's get loud. (laughs) (laughs) And see, not everybody could sit through that song 45 times a day. What is it like when you have to fire someone from your business?
3: Okay, so we kind of have this all or nothing approach to firing. So like I mentioned it's been a bad year for business, right? The the bigger companies are doing fine, so you when you check like business news it doesn't look as bad. But when you talk to small businesses, I know a lot of people who run small businesses and it's been a tough year. You know, obviously inflation, things are getting more expensive. Wages aren't going up. People have less disposable income. And I was telling a friend, you know, oh, our sales are down 13 percent on the previous year. And she worked with like a bunch of different brands. And she's like, the brands I work with on average, all of them are down 60 percent this year. Six zero. It's like it's bad out there. It's hard. And people are losing their jobs. And You know, we had a monthly meeting yesterday and I had to go into work and I always pose it as a vote question. I keep the data and we vote on things, but you know the answer. So I go in and I'm like, money's tight. I think we should find a way to cut $22,600 a month from our business spending. Yeah. Who has ideas? And the first question I ask is, this would correlate to us laying off, you know, roughly Four-ish people t- to make that, and then have a little buffer safety zone. And a traditional business right now, they would be laying off four people. Who here wants to lay off four people? Nobody's hand goes up. Right. Nobody wants that. And I'm like, okay, so who here wants to get creative and come up with ways to cut this money and try to increase our sales? Like, what do we have? Let's bring it to the table. And. We have instead this, you know, really intense, long conversation and meetings and coming to hard truths and thinking about things from a small time perspective and a big time perspective. What do we do today to get more money in the door? What do we do six months from now to get more money in the door? And that's what really motivates and inspires people. And it's scary to go into work and have somebody say, yeah, at this point in a regular business, people would be laid off. Mm-hmm. But our number one goal is always trying not to lose a single person. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what we want to do. And the only time I've really had to lay people off in the past, I talk about it in the book. It's this one time when I was fumbling to figure out the business plan and everybody got laid off and yeah. one person got rehired. And it's kind of an all or nothing idea. It's like the business won't survive. So everybody has to go. Yeah. Because The ideology of the business isn't that we punish people for having more skill set or less skill set or being able to do more or less. You know, everybody's capable of different amounts of things and it's very, very hard to quantify. So the approach to layoffs, for example, or, you know, firings, which is a little different, is if people have a complaint about you, they bring it to the group and we discuss it and you have opportunities to change your behavior and try to do better. And sometimes there are people where the behavior doesn't change fast enough and it becomes an ongoing thing like, hey, you need to change this. This is not working in the office. Sometimes we try more creative things like how about we remove you from the workspace and we let you work from home? Will that fix what's going on? And lots of times just changes like that will. Like we had one employee who struggled to fit in in the physical office space, not because of fault of her own. She was just, you know, a little different. She listened to different music than everybody else in the office. She had different taste in fashion. We're a fashion company. She'd come up with an idea and we'd all be like, oh, that's not really the market we're trying to hit. And she felt really ostracized. And she finally was like, can I just work from home? And at first we were like, I don't know how to do that with your job. But then we worked through it. She started working from home. Now she's like one of the best workers we have. So our, our approach is always to try anything we can and view firing people as like, The day the day one person gets fired and it's not a mass layoff, come back later situation, that would be that would be shocking to me. That's something nobody wants to do. And I will say out of the time I had to when everybody was working on my house and I laid everybody off, everybody except for one person has come back to work at the business. So it was temporary. Yeah, everybody came back except for one person. And that's because she chose not to. She was doing her own thing.
0: That's interesting because I think people want a quick solution. That's why they lay people off. And I'm wondering, you know, it's interesting as I'm hearing you talk, it's like, well, what what incentive does someone have to learn more skills so they don't get fired? And it's like, well, why are we operating as if there's like a a, a monster chasing you? Like you're working from a, a <laughs> yeah. place of like stress and you're working from a place of fear rather than a place of liking and, and wanting people to, wanting the business to do well and wanting personally to do well. Or even if you're like, quiet, quitting or whatever. If you're just doing your job, you're doing your job. Like if you had said to that person, well, you need to work harder to get along with everyone. It's like, well, that's not what they want to do. Like if there's another solution, then why not do that solution? But I think people are just like, oh, it's a waste of time, blah, blah, blah. And
3: that's what we always try to do. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Hey guys, Gabe Dunn here. I just wanted to let you guys know that I have a Patreon at patreon.com slash Gabe S Dunn. And on that Patreon, I'm gonna start doing live hangs with everyone who is a patron. So if you wanna join the Patreon, you can get all these episodes ad free, videos of our mailbag episodes, extra writing from me, blogs, fiction, other stuff, things that I'm thinking about with regards to money and personal stories. And also now live hangs with me on Zoom once a month. So join the Patreon. And if you're not a member of the Discord, hop on over to the Discord. That's free. The link will be in the description. It's so fun. So many of you guys talk over there. It's like truly popping off. Um, And if you're on the Discord, I would love to see you in the live hang. So I get to put a face to a name. So yeah, please join patreon.com slash Gabe S. Dunn and come hang out with me. Managing my finances is incredibly stressful and time-consuming. I'm sure you guys know. You've been with me on this journey. You know how many finance apps I've tried. You know how much they haven't worked for me. And I'm always on the hunt for a finance app that fits my life. And then I tried Monarch. It is so easy to use with powerful features, collaboration tools, intuitive design, personalization, constant product improvements. I really value an app that allows me to do all of this without confusion. And especially important to me is intuitive design and the ability to personalize, because clearly finance is not one size fits all. Did you know that money issues are a leading cause of divorce? Monarch, the top rated personal finance app, also has built in collaboration features so you can invite your partner at no extra cost. Together, you can see all your finances, collaborate on your budget and get insights on your cash flow and recurring transactions. It's the easiest way to manage your household finances. Are you saving for a down payment, a wedding, a dream vacation? Monarch makes it so easy to help you reach your financial goals. That's why the Wall Street Journal named it the best app for growing your savings. Have you been frustrated with personal finance apps that are cluttered with ads, difficult to use, rarely updated? So was Monarch. They built a new kind of personal finance app that's intuitive and powerful and ad-free and constantly improving based on customer feedback. Experience a personal finance app that prioritizes the user experience above all else. Monarch is the top-rated, all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash badmoney. Unlike other personal finance apps, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. Plus, there's ad-free privacy you can trust. We will never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners of this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com badmoney. That's m o n a r c h m o n e y dot com slash bad money for your extended 30 day free trial. I love to track progress. As you guys know from listening to this show, I'm constantly tracking my progress. What have we done so far in 2024? And spring is in full bloom. Are your finances blooming too? The Chime Credit Builder Visa credit card is issued by the Bancorp Bank NA or Stride Bank NA members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to chime.com/disclosures for details.
3: Yeah, I think we view everybody who works there as an investment, like we've invested in you and you're part of this business and we care about you. And I think sometimes people like to paint more socialist or egalitarian setups as being very utopian or idealistic. And I tell people like we have problems at work like any other workplace. We have interpersonal issues. This person can't sit next to this person. This person doesn't (laughs) like that person. We have one of our employees we call Black HR and they're just, they're Black and they're like, hey, that was a microaggression. That was kind of racist. Don't play that song in here, you know? And you're like, oh, thank God, thank you for being Black HR and keeping us all in line. And we have other employees who are Black who are like, I don't want to tell a bunch of white people how not to offend me all day. But this one is like, oh no, I have no problem telling white people how not to offend me all day. And you're like, oh, okay, that works for you and your personality and it's useful and helpful to us. So we have all these, we do have issues. We have complications that arise like any other company. But I think that people are more motivated to work through them and try to figure them out because of how egalitarian the structure is and because ultimately people know that the company cares about them.
0: Yeah, I hated when I worked at BuzzFeed and I felt like I was LGBTQ HR. But like, that's because (laughs) it was coming from, I think that's because it was coming from a place of, like, I didn't feel listened to or I didn't feel... I felt like it was taking up time from what I wanted to do. But I wonder if having a workplace where you can bring that up and like have that in a monthly meeting and and have seen examples of it changing might have made it less of a stressful situation or a negative situation.
3: Yeah. I mean, there are some things people do they bring up more quietly because they don't want it to be a big deal. They're like, hey, just so you know, I'm having this issue with this person. Is there a creative way we can minimize our interaction together? And I'm like, yes, I got you. And and they don't want me to bring it up to the person because they don't want to make it a whole thing. But yeah, everybody's personality is different. Some other people are like, oh no, like I live to tell white people I hate them. Like, let's go. (laughs) Like, I am so satisfied. And I'm like, great, thank you. Yes, please tell us. Because nobody here wants to be the, the, you know, capitalized bad white person. But like, hello, it's a system of white supremacy. And even like the the white people doing our best, like we're going to fuck up. We're going to mess up. We're going to say the wrong thing, do the wrong thing. And to have somebody who is willing to be like, absolutely not, never again, to your face, you're like, oh, that's like such an asset. And every single time it happens, I'm like, thank you. Like, thank you for being comfortable telling everybody this and speaking up. And the other thing we do too is at the end when these things are brought up, like we had a monthly meeting yesterday. One of our employees who was Black brought up like hey, you know, I think like in our customer representation, like we do these things called branding boards, for example, where we're like, these are the customers we're trying to hit. And to me, I'm always like, well, it represents like a style of clothing. Right. And they're like, these are all white or Asian people. There are no black or brown people on these boards. And I'm like, oh, well, that doesn't mean that's how we're going to do it. Like we're going to do it in our way. And they were like, yeah, but do you realize if this document was seen by anybody else, we would look very, very weird and creepy. And I'm like, Oh, like I do. So you follow it up, and you go, okay. Well, how do we make this actionable? This concern, like, what are things we can do right now to implement that will change this? Not just like, we hear you, we see you, like, yeah. No, and now we're gonna do A B C D E F G like before this meeting's over to make sure this gets corrected, and then we're gonna have a follow up meeting the next day to make sure you, when we slept on it, nobody came up with a different thought, or yeah. you know what I mean. So it's like about. Taking act like making these concepts very actionable for the workplace, and again, I think it's things that a lot of workplaces struggle with. And I think the best approach is just to acknowledge it and put it on the table and be like, "Yeah, like we exist in a system of white supremacy. Like there's going to be microaggressions in the workplace, and we're not going to pretend like we're such good people that we're above it. Like, yeah, no, it's going to happen. So we're, we we got to figure out how to deal with it when it does or you know there's that or like you know it's a small workplace people are going to have someone they just don't vibe with mm-hmm. you know for totally not offensive reasons of any kind and like that's just going to happen yeah. and i tell people we don't have to love each other we just have to not kill each other long enough to get a paycheck it's like the anti family approach like you know you do not have to love anybody here you do not have to love me you do not have to love the person sitting next to you we just got to figure out how not to kill each other and get the job done <laughs> that's
0: yeah and like providing like actual you know, everybody has good healthcare. everybody has the same take home is probably better than just being like, we're a family. Here's a, a button. Thanks for doing your job.
3: <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, we are. My goal is that we are the anti-family. We are people who are motivated by like logistics, a little bit of creativity. Yeah. Right. And like, let's let's keep this train running smoothly as long as possible and as best we can.
0: So I wanted to ask about your personal story. Do you personally budget stuff still?
3: Oh, my gosh. Yes. Well, I look at my budget multiple times a day. Like, yes, I am addicted to budgeting. I am a hardcore budgeter. Um, so I use a spreadsheet for mine. And I actually have been using the same spreadsheet for years with multiple tabs. So it's so cool because I can look back on older tabs and be like, oh, this is what I was doing in 2015 oh my with gosh. my budget. And you can look at the. It's cool because you can see like, oh, I had all this debt and like I managed to pay everything off except for some lingering student loans, you know, and you look at that and that feels really good or I could look at my old goals. My old goals would be like, oh, if I could just earn $50,000 a year and it'd be like, oh, I did that. Like, wow, that's so cool. Or, you know, maybe one day I can buy a house and then I bought a house. And so it's like, oh, I, I accomplished that. So, yeah, I use this spreadsheet and I also use an automated system of bank transfers to go along with it i call it money bondage what's so that i have <laughs> okay so adhd i have impulse spending issues this has always been my big thing and not even like fun stuff like i just will impulse spend on horrible ridiculous things like one thing that i do is if i go to a restaurant and i can't decide what to get on the menu the waiter's there and i panic and like oh, i'll just get both. So it's like, okay, so you buy two entrees every time you go out to dinner and you're wondering why you're broke all the time. And it's like, okay, the Republicans are right. It's not the coffee, but realistically, the two entrees for every single meal at a restaurant. Yeah, that might be doing something bad for you financially, there, Hanson. So Hanson's my real last name, by the way. Pendleton's my middle name. So I go by Madeline Pendleton. But when I coach myself, Hanson comes out, you know? So. yeah. When like this kind of happens, you know, the the budget is king. But how do you make yourself stick to the budget? So the thing that I do is for my budget, I organize all of my expenses into categories. There's either bill payments, there's savings or there's something I call my allowance, which is the money I'm allowed to spend on things I don't need. Go out to dinner, get a cup of coffee, get a drink in a bar, like go to a show like that all lives under allowance. And for every section of my paycheck that corresponds with one of those categories, I have a different bank account that that portion of the paycheck gets transferred into a payday. So for example, direct deposit hits my main checking account Wednesday, Thursday morning, the 40% I put in my savings, which yes, I saved 40%. I'm very proud of myself, goes automatically into my savings account. So the 40% that would be my savings automatically transfers into my savings. The 10% that's my allowance automatically transfers into a separate checking account I call my allowance account. And that's the debit card that I take with me when I go out into the world to make sure I don't, overspend impulse spend on things. And then the rest goes into my bill payment account where all of my bills are auto paid from it. And I don't have a debit card associated with my bill payment account. I can't spend it even if I wanted to. And my allowance actually is at a separate bank. So I utilize the fact that it takes like three days to transfer money from one bank to another to make sure I don't impulse transfer money to spend on something dumb for myself. So I've created, I call it the money bondage system, right? So it's like the tangible actualization of my budget, if that makes sense. Like you can write it down on a page, but if you can't stick to it, who cares? So I made a system where it's, it's very, very difficult for me not to stick to the budget at this point.
0: Wow. Okay. So you have separate bank account and you are, and your paycheck comes in and you, and it automatically goes to these different accounts.
3: Yeah, exactly. And I don't have a debit card associated with my primary checking account either. The only debit card I have is my allowance. So I can never mess up.
0: Wow. So what happens if like something bad happens? Well, then it comes from
3: my savings. Yeah. And for my savings, I have a special credit card. So I can use airline miles, but the credit card stays at home in a drawer. Yeah. So I have to intentionally be like, this is going on my credit card. And I immediately transfer it from my savings to the credit card. And the credit card goes back away.
0: And what about like ordering stuff from delivery or being like... No, that would all be my allowance. Oh, interesting. So like if you're pulling up, you know, DoorDash or whatever, you're like, okay, what's in my allowance?
3: Exactly. Yeah. And I check my allowance all the time and people at coffee shops probably are very confused because I'll be there and I'll be like, okay, I can get it. I still have $14.12 of allowance.
0: Oh, yeah. (laughs) And it is that... Yeah, it's that low sometimes. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. And that motivates you to to not like freak out.
3: I mean, I when I first implemented budgeting and I set up this system, this is why I suddenly had peace of mind when even my income didn't change. Like when I was making $19,000 a year living in L.A., you can imagine how difficult. Right. You also live in L.A. Yeah. When I implemented this system. I had been having panic attacks about money like every single day. Yeah. And after I implemented the system, my income didn't change, but my peace of mind changed so much because I felt like I knew what was happening. Yeah. And also along with making my budget, I talk about it this in the book, making the budget's the first part. The second part is you actually have to change things in your life. So I changed my insurance plan. I changed the car I drove. I changed my phone plan. And I managed to get my budget leveled out to a comfortable-ish place, more yeah. comfortable than I had been, right? From there though, yeah, like, utilizing the system where it took the guesswork out, it took the human error out, it made it so that I could have all the impulses in the world. It didn't matter if I didn't have the card with me to make the purchase. And once I did that, it was very, very freeing and it granted me huge peace of mind. And I've been doing it, for years now and actually recently i was like i'm so much better with money now i should be allowed to bring my credit card with me and spend it as it makes sense because then i'll get more airline miles i did this for two months and i looked at my spending was like what never again oh my i cannot be trusted like i oh oh and and just that one simple change i spent a thousand dollars more a month than i usually do yeah so i i need the money bondage and and that's the thing it's like i think the impulse spending is an adhd symptom from what people have told me it's how ADHD works and I'm stuck with ADHD for the rest of my life. So I'm going to be stuck with the money bondage system, I think for the rest of my life too, but it's okay. I like it. It's freeing. Yeah. Do you not have your credit card saved on any websites? No, 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 no. It's And, and I, I think that's one of the most important keys to success. I have my allowance card saved on things. Okay for sure. The allowance card is hooked up, but the allowance account doesn't allow overdrafting. Like, again, it's impossible for me to overspend. And I will spend that thing down to like the penny sometimes. I will be doing the most ridiculous math in the world. I'll be staring at it. Somebody will be like, do you want to go out to dinner? And I'm like, okay, I got I got $8 in here. Yeah. <laughs> here's, here's what I can make happen with you right now, my friend, you know, yeah. and and I'll count it out. And be like, I can go to this one place where you order tacos at a counter. And if I get this one taco and I tip this much and I get like a side of chips, this will be exactly $8. And like that, then I'll be like, okay, I can go with you, but only to this one place to do this one event. And people are usually really receptive. And I think a lot of times when you tell... I think a lot of people are afraid to tell their friends that they're budgeting. Yeah. Or like a shame associated with it. But whenever I'm very frank and candid with my finances in that way, I find that sometimes my friends feel relieved. They're like, oh, thank God. I don't want to spend a lot of money either. Like I thought you were going to say we should go to this sit down restaurant and spend freaking 50 bucks each tonight on a meal. And I'm like, no, no, walk up taco counter. We're looking at getting in and out under 10 bucks still being able to tip 20% or more. So I think we got this handled. And, And I think that's something that but yeah, we don't think this is going to happen. We feel like our bad experiences with money are personal, we feel personal shame, but it, most people are going through this, yeah. I think. And and when you're candid with your friends about it, you build kind of a friendship culture where it's easy for you to say, I want to see you. I want to hang out with you. I can't afford that. Should we just go on a walk? Should we just do something that doesn't cost money? Should we get old stuff together out of our closet and go sell it at like Buffalo Exchange today? You know, there's like other ways yeah. you can socialize that maybe you wouldn't have thought of if you didn't feel comfortable enough to be candid about, for me, things like my allowance. <laughs> yeah.
0: And, and like walk around and maybe you're seeing more stuff in your town. I don't know.
3: Yeah, it's fun. I love walking in L.A. People think nobody walks in L.A., but I love to do it. Well, they, I hardly ever drive my car, honestly.
0: It depends on the the area. But like, it is nice to be able to be like, I mean, I moved to West Hollywood primarily so I could walk to a lot of different places.
3: I lived in Koreatown for a long time and I worked downtown and I got rid of my car. And I remember I was like, oh, I'm just taking the subway. I live off the subway. I work off the subway. And I remember everybody was like, What? Like, people could not understand this. And it is true, we don't have ideal public transportation infrastructure anywhere in the United States. But whatever we do have, I'm like, oh, you're going to have to take it from my cold, dead hands. Like, I'm going to use as much of this as I can. They're giving me nothing, and I'm taking all of it.
0: That's (laughs) so funny. You
1: have one unheard message.
0: I like feel like I need my car because I have some weird thing in my mind about there's going to be an apocalypse and I'm going to need my car, which is like, whatever, not real. Might be real. You don't know. My friends who have like my one friend who has a Tesla or my other friends who have Teslas, I'm like, they're like, oh, it's easy. There's charging stations everywhere. And I was like, you think there's a charging station in the middle of nowhere And when you're going to have to drive your car through the middle of nowhere to escape the zombies? You're going to stop? You're going to stop and charge your car? You're crazy.
3: I mean, I have the car for the same reason. I don't use it a lot, but I'm like, my precious, though. Right. And my precious, by the way, is a a used Kia with 130,000 miles on it. I'm like, my precious. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's the thing is implementing a lot of changes, but not necessarily getting rid of the stuff that you you want, you know, just getting rid of like, I, you know, I realized, I mean, I'm going through a tough time because I'm doing a breakup that was heinous financially. And I was going through like, well, what streaming services do I actually watch? And I was like, this is so funny. I watch like the, I watch like Shudder and Discovery Plus. Like I'm not even really watching like Hulu or like anything like that. So I was like, that's so, that's so interesting. Like you just think, oh, I have to have this. You have to have Netflix. You have to have this. But I'm like, what do I actually, I'm just watching like movies on maybe Prime and then like Murder and then like Movies on Shutter.
3: this is really interesting because I have the exact same like streaming movie watching kind of situation yeah. like this is all I do too I watch like horror movies on Shutter. And then I watched Discovery Plus and I I actually showed my budget recently online and everyone's like, bestie, Discovery Plus merged with like Max. So you can like remove that subscription and save yourself $10. And I'm like, oh God, I totally forgot that happened. Like I knew and then I just didn't rework it. But it's totally true. Like, and I think that's the thing about budgeting. It's about maximizing what actually matters to you and what you value and like what brings you joy. Yeah. It doesn't mean you cut off everything, but it's sometimes you do, you balance things. You're like, well, what's more important to me? What do I actually use? Does this actually and this is maybe a Vicki Robin thing. Yeah. Does this actually bring me joy? Is yeah. it worth me spending this much money on?
0: Is that your dog or mine? It's my dog. I'm so sorry. Oh. She's very vocal. No, no, that's OK. My, mine also. I closed the door and you would think that I <laughs> murdered him.
3: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But only every like 10 seconds she like comes up and she's like, oh, how could you do? Oh, my God. Bye. Yeah. <laughs> like, so now she's gone. OK, great. Sorry yeah, about that. The le- No,
0: just the level of like I like, I did one thing and it's, I was like, your life is so hard that I moved you to your bed and you're acting like so dramatic. Yeah. I mean, I think like implementing the changes is, is hard for people, but I do like the idea of, of setting it up for yourself. And you're not going to be perfect. Like, obviously, you know, you're going to make mistakes. You're going to be like, oh shit, I didn't realize that Verizon thing was coming from here or like you're not going to be perfect about it. But I often think, people don't implement the change because they're worried about it not being perfect. Like the accounting example uh, for, for the first month you're doing it is not going to be perfect right away, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't do it.
3: Yeah. And I do this. I set up budgets with all of my friends. I like
0: love doing this. So I'm like, do you want to make a budget? Oh my God. You and my boyfriend should hang out. You guys have the same (laughs) interests.
3: No, when you said the thing about the spreadsheet on the couch, I was like, no, say less. I understand. Like the the coast. Yeah. I was like, uh-huh. Yes. T- yeah, of course. But yeah, I set up budgets with all my friends. And what I usually do is I say, look, we're going to set it up the best we can. And when I say the best we can, the best. Like we're going to do our due diligence. Over the next month, some things are going to go wrong and we're going to you're going to write down everything that goes wrong. And in one month, we're going to catch up again and we're going to change everything that needs to be changed. And another thing I learned from like people talking about ADHD all the time is the idea of like body doubling. Yeah. And like big surprise. It turns out most of the people in my life have ADHD. I just was drawn to them. So I'm like, oh, you make so much sense to me. But the reason why when I sit down and do the budget with them. If there's things that need to be corrected later, I'm never like, yeah, and then you just correct them. I'm like, no, you come back. Yeah. We do it together. And while we're sitting there talking, we correct it. Yeah. And I think that's another really important part of budgeting. Like, you can't leave anything to later. And sometimes you need someone just to sit next to you and say, we are doing this right now. This yeah. is the activity we are doing. Yeah. And and that's what I did when I did my budget and when I do my budgets with my friends for them. And also when I set them up, I use the money bondage system with my friends, too. So.
0: Yeah, that's I think that's something that I need to do. I I you know, it was interesting because I reached I I had like not really any financial education growing up, uh, which I've talked about on this show. And so then I like I'm starting over and I feel like a lot of regret and shame because I'm like you had it together and then what the fuck happened? So there's like some stuff that I am like avoiding definitely. Like yesterday my my boyfriend was like, "Well, how much does your how much is there a fee for your retirement? Like, are you paying a fee monthly to like keep it? And I was like, y- I think so. But whatever it is, it's not that much. Like, it's not something that I notice. And he's like, OK, but you'll notice if it's like, you know, at the end of a year, if it's a one hundred dollars the whole time, that's a thousand, you know, that's. Tw-. And I was like, oh, you're right. Like, I guess that is like they trick you into thinking per month it's not that much. So There is stuff that I like have to go back and look at and change. And I've done a lot of it. But you know what, it's easier for me to be like, I'm canceling Netflix. Great. I did my thing for the day. Than it is to be like, wait a minute, check if the retirement fund had like the Netflix is $7.99 or whatever it is. But you got to check if the retirement fund is is, 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 has got like a fee.
3: Right. That's why I tried to do it all in one day, though. I'm like, come over, bring water, be fed. We are doing one day. We are doing eight hours of your finances. But I'm going to sit right next to you the whole time. And we're actually going to complete all the tasks. And because I because I have ADHD and a lot of my friends do. I see them when they get to the point where they're like, drifting off and yeah. they're like should we go get a coffee and i'm like sit right there in that seat we are finishing this test young oh lady God. like, I'm
0: kind of mean like mommy. a dad
3: absolutely mean yeah. daddy mean mommy <laughs> yeah but i mean in the end i'm like look we're gonna do this one day of hell and then you are not gonna have to think about this again unless your income changes or your expenses change yeah and once they do you only need to change that one thing but You know, I think it is hard for people to want to invest the one day or whatever. And what I found is that it saved me so much work down, down the line to just hardcore focus on it all absolutely once. Also, about the house thing, I will tell you, in case it makes you feel any better, a lot of people give me grief for owning a house with my partner online and we're not married. And my friend is going through a divorce and she's like, oh, let me tell you, it was actually worse that we were married because we both owned a house together. And now it's like we have to sell the house and yeah. split the assets for the divorce. Yeah. Whereas she's like, if we weren't married, one of us would just become like the legal renter of both of us as a group. And yeah. we it would be easier. Somebody could live in it and both of us could still own it and have the equity appreciating. So I think that there are like, I think owning property, owning anything of value with somebody is, is difficult, but... You know, I think even the very traditional model that the United States tells you you're supposed to do, like, okay, then you graduate from college, you get the good job, you get married, you have the kids. Like, what happens if you get divorced? Like, that's what people are telling you you're supposed to do. And if you get divorced, you're going to have
0: to deal with this house together just like anybody else would. Yeah. Well, sometimes I'm like, I wish we had gotten married and not bought the house. But then I'm like, well, no, that would have been like, then I would have had to do all the marriage stuff with this person. I might owe them alimony, who fucking knows. But it's yeah. very much like with the house. Yeah. It's very much like I, I've been banging the drum on this podcast, sort of being like, Hey, don't trust anybody. And like also, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I think like they, it, it, it was, I didn't realize how much that you can put into work. You can put into writing what you'll do if you break up. But nobody has to, nobody has to do do that. Like I was just reading this article about divorce and it was like, you can put child custody in your prenup, but it actually doesn't matter because they only take into account what your situation is when you're divorcing. So you can say in your prenup, like, oh, you know, the dad will get full custody. And then when you're actually divorcing, if the dad has substance abuse issues and the mom doesn't, the court will just do whatever they're going to do. So it's like interesting to, to realize that your protections are not what you think they are, even if you put stuff into writing.
3: Yeah, it's totally true. I mean, I think that like the, so I am kind of, I maybe you a few years ago and I just don't know it yet, but like the... <laughs> The house that I own, my best friend and my boyfriend and I went in together and purchased one plot of land with two different houses on it. And it made it much more affordable for us to buy in L.A. So, you know, all of these people, when we bought together, it's like, okay, my boyfriend and I have been together eight years. My best friend and I, we've known each other for 15 years. Very, very candid relationships, conversations about money, you know. Early on when we met, we were like, let's be the person for each other that you can ask to do messed up things. And you'll just say yes, no question. Like, I'll be like your, your anything friend. Like, we, yeah. car broke down in the middle of the road in 29 Palms at 3 in the morning. Like, okay, I'm the friend that has to pick you up. This is our, like, social debt to each other. And the thing that I think is interesting is that I when I went into it with them, it, I didn't assume that everything would end perfectly. And, and I think what I did in my head is I played through, yeah, like, What's the worst thing that could happen here? How could this all blow up? And and legally, you know, the worst thing that could happen for me is like, okay, it's a huge crisis. It goes to court and the court orders us to sell the whole property yeah. and divide the assets up based on percent of ownership, like on the grant deed or whatever. And when I thought about that, I'm like, well, it's still going to be something that's better for me financially than if I had never bought property at all, because I was very working class person. I didn't have a savings account even. And this is the only way I could own something that appreciated in value. So I think it's hard because I think like you, we do have to acknowledge in life that sometimes things will be messy and difficult, but they could have still been a good decision
0: at the time. Yeah, mine wasn't. Because I didn't, <laughs> I mean, it was a lot of lawyers and then I had to sign an NDA. So, oh, sick, okay, brah. so we can't
3: talk about I, why. <laughs> yeah,
0: I mean, the people know. And also, it's interesting because there's like a third person who's not you and your boyfriend. So, this third right, person and- can be like, now, wait a minute, which is always nice. And-
3: She also is 50% owner of the whole property because she has one house and my boyfriend and I split the other. So we're both 25 and she's 50. And, you know, again, because we're not legally married, we did uh, have a contract when we purchased that was like, this is exactly how things will go down, you know? You know, I I think it's hard though. I think like, I want to say like, oh, that would never happen with my friends. And I know like old hippies who have like owned communes together, like on what they call a handshake deal. They're like, we didn't even have a contract. And and you know what? It wasn't Sunshine and Roses This one chick, Linda, was not cool, man. We did not like Linda. But guess what? When Linda left the commune, Linda still got all her money back, even though we hated her. And you're like, okay, it can work. But yeah, everybody involved has to be like minded. And yeah, sometimes you think you know people and they turn out to be really different than you thought. And and that's a that's really hard.
0: Well, thank you so much for joining us. Where can people find you and more about you? So I am on TikTok. It is at Madeline Pendleton there. There might
3: be an underscore in it. I don't even know my own TikTok.
0: Well, your TikTok is insanely popular because I think you're very good at dispensing the information and also probably don't look like other finance people. So I imagine you get a lot of very angry men.
3: Oh, yeah. Men love to be angry at me. It's like my superpower. So it is Madeline underscore Pendleton on TikTok. And there you can watch me fight with men. against my best interests all the time. The other day, I just fought with a man about uh, my car, which I have owned for years, and he has never driven. And I was like, why am I fighting with this man about a car he's never driven? This is ridiculous. But yes, so you will watch me fight with men there on TikTok. And also, I have a podcast called Pick Me Up. I'm scared. And it is about Politics mostly, but also social issues. And that might interest people. It's, it's basically where I go to gripe about capitalism in as many forms. What a great name. Yeah. Thank you. And then I have the business tunnel vision and tunnel vision's social media presence is mostly on Instagram. It's at shop tunnel. tunnel yeah. Shop tunnel vision. I don't even know my own social handles. And of course, the book, which is coming out January, January 16th. The book is out and it is called. I survived capitalism and all I got was this lousy t-shirt. And it's available many places, I am told. You can get it a lot of places. Yeah. Which In- is
0: exciting. Indie bound is the one that I like. Oh, okay, good. I don't I don't read. So I don't... literally <laughs> I don't know. are you my boyfriend wearing a wig? <laughs> we need to hang out, yeah. is what I'm learning. Yes.
3: <laughs> I will not be there,
0: but I love that for you guys.
3: That's okay. We'll just stare at each other while typing into our own respective spreadsheets. Yeah.
0: Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And yeah, check out everything that Madeline's doing. It's all great. Thank you. Bad With Money with Gabe Shane Dunn is a production of Noted Bisexual, produced by Melissa D. Montz and Diamond M. Print Productions, edited by Diane King, post-production sound by Coco Lorenz, and music by Mike Kaplan, Zach Sherwin, and Jack Dolgen as sung by Sam Barbera.